Section 16 of Abe and Morris. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abe and Morris, being further adventures of Potash and Perlmutter by Montague Glass. Section 16. Chapter 11. Man Proposes. Part 2. When Morris entered his place of business the next morning, he found his partner examining the advertising columns of a morning paper, with an absorption hardly justified by the tabulated list of births, marriages, and deaths at which he was gazing. "'What's biting you now, Abe?' Morris demanded. "'What do you mean, what's biting me?' Abe rejoined and Morris blushed in the consciousness of his oversleeping that morning by more than half an hour. "'Say, looky here, Abe,' he cried. "'I don't know what you're driving into, understand me? But if you think you could get brogus at me just because I'm ten minutes late once in a while, you understand? Let me tell you, I'm catching a twelve o'clock train from Mount Vernon last night, and not alone. I'm talking myself blue in the face to that fellow Guerin, you understand?' But when I got home already, I couldn't get to sleep till I told the whole thing to my Minnie yet. Abe nodded slowly. Yes, Abe, Morris continued. I gotta go over the story twice over already. And even then, you understand, my Minnie gets mad because I didn't contradict myself. Only one idea that woman got in her head, Abe. If I'm out of the house shown ten minutes already, you couldn't tell her otherwise, but I'm playing auction pinochle. Well, you might just as well have been playing auction pinochle last night for all the good it would do us. What are you talking about, all the good it would do us? Morris almost whimpered. I actually got the fella dead to rights, Abe. And all you must now do is to work from the other end. Abe burst into a mirthless laugh and handed Morris the paper. You should have worked the other end first, Morris, he declared, as he indicated an advertising item with his thumb. That's what Leon Samet did, Morris. Morris seized the paper, and his face grew purple as he read the following notice. Engaged. Asimov, Gladstein. Mrs. Sonia Gladstein of Bridgetown, PA, to Jacob Asimov of Dottyville, PA, at home Sunday, next three to seven at the residence of Miss Leah Samet, 86 and three and a quarter West 118th Street. No cards. Leon's mother makes the engagement party for him, Morris, Abe said dryly. Cost a whole lot of money, too, and I bet you Mrs. Glastine wouldn't notice it at all in the next six months' statements Leon sends to her. Morris stifled a groan as he laid down the paper and forced himself to smile confidently. What difference does an engagement make, Abe? he asked. An engagement ain't a wedding, Abe, and it ain't too late even now. Again, Abe indulged in a bitter laugh. "'You're a regular optician, Morris,' he said. "'You never give up hope.' "'That's all right, Abe,' Morris retorted. "'We could stand a couple of opticians in this concern. "'Always you're ready to lay down a proposition "'just as soon as things goes a little wrong, understand me? "'But me, I think differently.' "'Abe shrugged and rose to his feet. "'Well, Morris,' he said, Take off your hat and coat and stay a while. Maybe you could do a little business here this morning for a change. Maybe we could. Maybe we couldn't, Abe, Morris rejoined, as he buttoned up his coat. 
but just the same I'm going to do something which you will really be surprised. Not at all, Abe corrected. We are partners together so long I'm only surprised supposing you should act sensible. Well, the way I look at it, I am acting sensible, Abe, Morris announced. I am acting sensible because I'm going right down to see Marcus Flax, and I would buy from him for ten dollars cut glass, and I would show that sucker Sam he couldn't phase me none. What do you mean, couldn't phase you none? Abe asked. I mean, if Samet is such a faker, he goes to work and makes engagement parties for his customers and puts them on the paper yet, Abe, Morris declared, as he jammed his hat down more firmly on his head. He must got to expect his competitors would take advantage of it, understand me? And you could bet your sweet life, Abe, Sunday afternoon comes three o'clock, I'm right there at his mother's house with the cut glass, and don't you forget it. Abe nodded grimly. It's a free country, Morris, he said, and nobody can stop you going to an engagement party which is in the paper, you understand? But you shouldn't forget one thing, Morris. You got on our ledge or a drawing account for stays too, and on your way out you should please tell Miss Cohn to enter the ten dollars cut glass in the right place. Don't worry, Abe, Morris cried as he started for the elevator. When the time comes, we should post in the ledger. If we ain't opened a new account in Bridgetown, PA, I'd pay for it myself. Ten minutes later, he entered the 23rd Street subway station en route to Canal Street. And no sooner had he bought his ticket than his enthusiasm began to wane. After all, he reflected as he boarded the train, ten dollars worth of cut glass seemed rather extravagant when one considered the size of an order that in the most favorable circumstances might emanate from a store in Bridgetown. Indeed, as the train pulled into the 18th Street station, he had come to believe that $7.50 would be a generous price, and even this figure commenced to look huge as 14th Street drew near. At Astor Place, Morris decided that five dollars' worth of cut glass would be more appropriate for a widow. When the guard announced the next stop as Bleecker Street, however, it occurred to Morris that the manufacturers of quadruple plate were producing some very artistic effects in knives, forks, and spoons, which, in appearance, were undistinguishable from sterling silver. And the train was leaving Spring Street when Morris bethought himself of a certain bonbonniere that had cost Mrs. Perlmutter precisely four dollars at a dry-goods store. He distinctly recalled examining the trademark to which were affixed the words triple plate. During the short walk from the Canal Street station to Marcus Flack's place of business, he wondered vaguely if there was such a thing as a double plate, and... When at last he opened the door of the pawnbroker's sales store in question, he approached the counter with his mind fully made up. "'Do you got maybe some sets from nutpicks?' he inquired of the proprietor. Marcus Flax took the question in ill part. "'What the devil do you think I'm running here?' he demanded by way of an answer. "'A five-and-ten-cent store.' "'Since when do they sell it nutpicks in a five-and-ten-cent store?' Morris retorted. Flax snorted angrily. "'I don't think they sell them even in five-and-ten-cent stores,' 
he said. And anyhow, Mr. Perlmutter, what for a present is nut picks? If a fella eats nuts twice a year, that's a big average. For my part, it would also break my heart if I'd never eat another nut so long as I live. Know what you want to get is something cheap, ain't it? Morris nodded. Something about two dollars and fifty cents, he said. That's what I thought, Flax replied. And for two dollars and fifty cents, there ain't much choice. Olive dishes is all I could show you. Let me give it a look at em, Morris said. And as Flax led the way to the well-stocked shelves in the rear of the store, Morris discerned for the first time the presence of another customer. How much did you say that there coffee samovar was? cried a familiar voice. I told you before, Mr. Klinger, Flax said. That ain't no samovar. That's a percolator, and it cost me, so sure as I'm standing here, fifteen dollars, so I'd let you have it for twelve fifty on account it's being shop-worn. Take ten dollars and make an end, rejoined Klinger, tendering a bill. For ten dollars I can give you a fine piece-cut glass, Mr. Klinger, Flax insisted. By way of answer, Klinger tucked away the ten-dollar bill he had taken from his waistcoat pocket, and Flax seized the coffee percolator with both hands. I'll wrap it up for you right away, he said. And then it was that Klinger recognized Morris, who had been standing unnoticed in the background. Hello, Perlmutter, he said. What are you doing here? I guess I'm doing the same thing what you're doing, Klinger, Morris replied stiffly. I'm buying for a customer a present, ain't it? Klinger nodded. Honestly, Perlmutter, he said. I never seen the like how things happen. No sooner you start to sell goods to a fellow than somebody's engaged or married in his family. He must be a pretty good customer the way you're blowing yourself, Morris commented. I betcha, Klinger said as he walked away. And if you be in our place, you do the same. For five minutes, Morris examined the cut glass, and when Flax returned, he had decided upon an olive dish of most intricate design. That's a close buyer, that Mr. Klinger, Flax observed. Not near so close as I am, Morris declared. Well, you wouldn't anyhow kick on paying twenty-five cents express, Mr. Perlmutter, Flax said. But that feller actually wants me to deliver the package for nothing. Why not? Morris asked. Don't everybody deliver packages free? Not a pawnbroker's sales store, Flax replied. And anyhow, Mr. Perlmutter, Leon Samet this morning buys from me for thirty dollars silver to be sent to the same place on 118th Street. Is that their percolator? And he didn't kick only a little that I'm charging him fifty cents express. What? Morris exclaimed. Is Klinger sending that percolator up to 118th Street, too? That's what I said, Flax answered. And Morris replaced the cut glass dish on the shelf. Was the name Gladstein? He inquired, and Flax nodded. Then in that case, Morris said savagely, let me look at some sterling silver for about $25. If them suckers could stand it, so could I. More than two days had elapsed before Abe had exhausted the topic of Mrs. Gladstein's $10 engagement present. He discussed it satirically, profanely, and earnestly from the standpoint of business ethics. 
in such maddening reiterations that Mars could not help wondering how much longer Abe's criticism would have continued, had he known that the cold meat tray really cost twenty-five dollars. "'You're throwing away good money after bad, Mars,' Abe said, renewing the subject after an interval of comparative calm. "'Because so sure as you are standing there, we would never get our two hundred and fifty out of that fella Guerin. "'What has Mrs. Gladstein's present got to do with Guerin?' Morris asked. "'If I told you once, Abe, in the last two days I'm telling you a dozen times, understand me? "'I am giving that there cold meat tray to Mrs. Gladstein as a speculation, Abe. "'What difference does it make who she marries, Abe, Guerin, or to Asimov, "'so long as we would land from her?' an order for five hundred dollars. Yeah, you would land from her an order for five hundred dollars, Abe exclaimed. Well, if Saul Klinger could do it, why couldn't we? Morris asked. What are you talking about, Saul Klinger? Abe demanded. Thereupon, Morris related to Abe the circumstances surrounding Saul Klinger's purchase of the coffee percolator, and when he concluded, Abe nodded slowly. So that highwayman is butting into, he commented. How much should you say he's paying for that samovar, Morris? Morris closed his eyes as though he were making a conscientious effort to remember the exact amount. Thirty dollars, he announced at last. What? Abe cried. You stood there and let Saul Klinger buy for thirty dollars a present where we ourselves only spend ten? What for a piker are you anyway, Morris? "'What do you mean, what for a piker am I?' Morris said indignantly. "'You're talking me black in the face on account I'm spending ten dollars, "'and now you're kicking it I didn't spend thirty? "'Did you tell me before that's all clinger buys a present?' Abe asked. "'And furthermore, Morris, this wouldn't be the first time we're spending money to get business. "'Couldn't we afford to lay out thirty dollars if we want to?' "'But Abe,' Morris began, "'but nothing,' Abe roared. Why should you get all of a sudden so sparse amid our money, Morris? You talk like we would be new beginners on East Broadway already. But Abe, Morris protested again. Enough, Morris, Abe interrupted. I heard enough from you already. Only one thing I got to tell you. If we lose a chance of getting some business from a lady, which you could really say I know her well enough that it's a shame we ain't sold her nothing already even. Don't blame me. That's all I got to say. He walked away to the cutting room while Morris sat down in the nearest chair, dazed to the point of temporary aphasia. For five minutes he sat still, endeavoring to trace the intricacies of a discussion that had put him so decisively in the wrong. And he was still pondering the matter when the elevator door opened and B. Guerin alighted. "'How do you do, Mr. Perlmutter?' Guerin cried." Morris grunted inarticulately and made no attempt to take his visitor's proffered hand. "'Did you got any news for me?' Guerin asked. Morris rose to his feet. "'Yes, I got some good news for you,' he said. "'I got news for you that Mrs. Gladstein is engaged to be married to a fellow by the name Asimov.' He looked absently at a sample rack upon which reposed the very newspaper that contained the advertisement. Here it is, he continued, as he seized the paper. You could see for yourself. He handed the advertisement to Guerin, who read it over, unmoved. Well, I must tell you the honest truth, Mr. Perlmutter, he said. I couldn't say as I'm sorry. 
and he smiled amiably. As Morris gazed at the fashion plate features and the fashion plate apparel of his visitor, he entirely forgot his optimistic scheme of supplanting Asimov with Girin, and he grew suddenly livid with a fierce rage. "'You ain't, ain't you?' he bellowed. "'Well, you ought to be, because so sure as you're standing there comes Monday morning, and we don't get a check from you, we would close you up for sure, you understand?' "'Now looky here, Mr. Perlmutter,' Girin began. But the reaction set up by Morris's encounter with his partner had begun to have its effect, and he seized Girin by one padded shoulder. "'Out!' he roared. "'Out of my place, you rat-and-cheap dude, you!' And two minutes later, B. Girin fled wildly down the stairs, the newspaper still clutched in his hand. Although Leon Samet had at first been actuated by motives of a somewhat sordid nature, in his negotiation of Mrs. Gladstein's betrothal, his subsequent behavior was tempered by the traditional hospitality of his race. As for his mother, Mrs. Elias Samet, she entered upon the preparations for the reception with an ardor that could not have been exceeded had Mrs. Gladstein been her own daughter. Thus, when Sunday afternoon arrived, Mrs. Samet's house on 118th Street presented an appearance of unusual festivity. The long, narrow parlor had been liberally draped with smilax and sparingly decorated with ex-table de haute roses, until it resembled the mortuary chapel of a Mulberry Street undertaker. And this effect was, if anything, heightened by four dozen camp chairs that had been procured from the sexton of Mrs. Samet's place of worship, a fine odor of cooking ascended from the basement kitchen, and when Jacob Asimov had entered the front door at the behest of a colored man with white gloves, he sniffed the fragrant atmosphere of the lobby like a coon-dog at the base of a hollow tree. "'Am I the first here?' he asked Barney Samet, the junior partner of Samet Brothers, who had been detailed by his elder brother to receive the arriving guests with strict injunction to keep an eye on the cigars." Barney nodded gloomily. "'And ain't Mrs. Gladstein, I mean, Sonia, come yet?' Jacob inquired. "'We just now got a telephone from her. The train from Bridgetown is late, and she'll be here in half an hour,' Barney replied. "'That's a fine lookout,' Asimov commented. "'I bet you by that time you get a big crowd here.' The words were prophetic, for the shuffling of many feet on the front stoop preluded the arrival of Saul Klinger. Mrs. Klinger, Mo Klein, and Mrs. Klein, who were immediately succeeded by the firm of Kleiman and Ellerbogen, a Trashkin, the coat-pad manufacturer, and Marks Pizinski. It must be conceded that Leon Samet comported himself in a highly creditable manner, and he greeted his guests with cordiality that embraced competitor and customer in one impartial, comprehensive smile. "'Why, how do you do, Mr. Klinger?' he exclaimed, and then he turned to Mrs. Leah Samet, who stood beside him. Mama, he said, I want you to know Mr. Klinger. Him and me has been competitors for twenty years already. Mrs. Samet nodded and smiled. For my part, twenty years longer, she murmured, as she grasped Saul's hand. At a time like this, Mrs. Samet, Saul rejoined, it don't make no difference to me if a man is ever so much a competitor. What I claim is let a sleeping dog alone. 
Mrs. Sammet endorsed the sentiment with another smile, and Saul with his retinue passed on into the back parlor for the purpose of inspecting the presents. In the meantime, other guests had preceded them, and among them was a man whose bearing and raiment proclaimed the creature of fashion. Not only were his trousers of the latest narrow design, but they were of sufficient modish brevity, half to conceal and half to reveal a pair of gossamer silk socks, which, in their turn, were encased by patent leather low-cut shoes. The latter exhibited the square knobbiness that only fashion artists can impart to the footgear of their models, while the broad laces that held them by the insecure holds of two eyelets were knotted in a bow that might have been appended to the collar of Mr. Paderewski himself. "'Ain't this Mr. Guerin?' Saul Klinger asked. The creature of fashion nodded. "'You're a friend of the collo, ain't it?' Klinger commented, employing the vernacular equivalent for the English word bride. "'In a way,' Guerin said evasively. "'Aba the cosin, I don't know at all.' Thus did Guerin imply that he was not acquainted with the future bridegroom, and Klinger volunteered the information that Asimov ran a dry goods store in Dottyville, Pennsylvania. I sold him goods for years, he added, and I guess I would continue to do so, even if that gone of Samet would make twenty engagement parties for him. Did you see the samovar I gave him? He pointed proudly to a silver-plated object, and Guerin glanced at it scornfully. Potash and Perlmutter gives him solid silver, he commented. A wide dish. Sure, I know, Klinger said. Thin like paper. Abba Sterling, Guerin insisted. And Klinger made a telling diversion. I suppose you sent him something sterling also, he said. Me? Guerin exclaimed. Why should I buy presents? I'm a retailer myself, Mr. Klinger, so I sent him some flowers. I don't see him nowhere, Saul retorted. They're over there, B. Guerin said, making a sweeping gesture in the general direction of the mantelpiece. And as he did so, a bass voice sounded at his elbow. Put my eye out, why don't you? cried Abe Potash, and then he recognized his assailant. Say, what are you doing here? he demanded. B. Guerin looked coldly at his creditor and shrugged his shoulders. I got just as much right to be here as you he said, and that partner of yours, too. He hurled this defiance at Morris, who had entered the room on Abe's heels, but the retort passed unnoticed so far as Morris was concerned, since he was absorbed in the contemplation of the presence. Well, Klinger, he said, you're making Mrs. Gladstein a pretty fine present, ain't it? Klinger scowled. Mrs. Gladstein, I ain't bothering my head about at all, he replied. But when a cutthroat like Samet makes out a scheme to steal away from me an old customer like Asimov, I gotta protect myself. Morris whistled expressively. So you're making the present to Asimov? He commented. Sure I am, Saul answered. As for Mrs. Gladstein, she got presents enough for me. The first time she was married, I'm sending some money to the old country to my father. He should make her a present on account Mrs. Gladstein's father is my father's a third cousin, understand? And when she marries Gladstein, you understand, I gave her both an engagement and a wedding present both. And do you think that sucker, Olaf Hasholom, ever buys for me a dollar's worth of goods? Also a shtuk. And you say Mrs. Gladstein was twice it married? Morris asked. Ain't I just telling you so? Saul replied. What was her first husband's name? 
Morris asked, but the question remained unanswered, for at that very moment a confusion of noises in the front parlor signaled the arrival of the bride. Morris and Saul followed the other guests from the rear parlor, and then it was that Morris discerned his partner's appreciative description of Mrs. Gladstein's claim to be in no way exaggerated. She was arrayed in a black silk dress of a design well calculated to display her graceful figure, while her oval face was shaded by a black picture hat, beneath which her large dark eyes glowed and flashed by turns. Moreover, her complexion was all cream and roses, and when she smiled, two rows of even white teeth were exposed between a pair of tantalizing red lips. Morris commenced to perspire with embarrassment as he remembered how he had planned to negotiate a match for this glorious creature, a task that only a very prince of marriage brokers might have essayed. He turned away, but as his eye rested on B. Guerin, who still lingered over the presence, he was obliged to admit that he had chosen a fitting candidate, and he even felt mollified toward his delinquent customer as he reflected on Guerin's lost opportunity. Guerin, he said, ain't you going to congratulate the Kahlo? I didn't know she was here at all, Guerin said sadly. The truth was that Guerin's presence at the reception that afternoon was not inspired by curiosity concerning either Mrs. Gladstone or Asimov. Business was undeniably bad with him, and he was making an earnest effort to keep his financial head above water. Thus, he limited his personal expenses to the preservation of his wardrobe, and he had cut down his cost of living to a degree that permitted only a very low lunch-wagon diet. He saw in Mrs. Samet's hospitality the prospect of a meal, and although he was by no means courageous, his appetite spurred him on to brave his creditor's wrath. "'I'll take a look at her,' he murmured apologetically, and he began to elbow his way through the group that surrounded the engaged couple. Morris patted him on the shoulder as he passed, and was about to return to the back parlor when a shriek came from the center of the congratulatory throng. "'Boris!' cried a female voice with a note of hysteria in its shrill tones. Sonya, B. Guerin exclaimed, and the next moment he clasped Mrs. Gladstein in his arms. "'You was asking me the name of Mrs. Gladstein's first husband,' said Saul Klinger to Morris Perlmutter as they descended the stoop together half an hour later. "'It was Aaron Lutsky.' He died two years after they was married. I knew his family well in the old country. Hers too, Perlmutter. Her father was a fellow by the name of Polanya, and today yet he runs a big flour mill on Koroleskovitsi. So I understand, Morris said. But what's that you got there under your coat? He referred to a huge bulge on the right side of Saul Klinger's Prince Albert coat, which Saul was supporting with both hands. That's my present, Saul said, as if surprised at the question. And if Marcus Flax wouldn't give me my money back, understand me, I could anyhow exchange it for something useful. It don't make no difference, Morris, Abe said, as they sat in the showroom two months later. The fellow should got to pay us that $250. 
"'But we would get lots of business out of them now that they are married, Abe,' Morris protested. "'Sure, I know, Morris, and they got lots of presents out of us, too, Morris,' Abe said. "'Counting the engagement and the wedding present, Morris, and my Rosie's new dress, and the pants which you bought it to go with your tuxedo, understand me? First and last, we must be out a hundred and fifty dollars.' Morris nodded. He recognized that an opportunity was here presented to correct Abe's figures by the addition of fifteen dollars to the price of the engagement present, but he deemed it more prudent to await the arrival of Guerin's first order. In point of fact, Morris had begun to examine the mails with some anxiety for a letter postmarked Bridgetown. More than two weeks had elapsed since Guerin's wedding and making due allowances for honeymooning, it seemed to Morris that from an inspection of Mrs. Gladstein's stock made by him on a congratulatory visit to Bridgetown, there was immediate need for replenishment. "'I don't understand why we don't hear from them people at all,' he said. "'Give him a show, Morris. Give him a show,' Abe replied. "'A man only gets married for the first time once.' Morris shrugged. "'For my part, Abe,' I ain't in no hurry, he said. If you could see the way Leon Samick gives me a look this morning when I see him on the subway, you understand it'd be worth to you a hundred and fifty dollars. Saul Klinger is feeling sore, too, Abe. I seen him in Hammersmith's yesterday, and he says to me, Flax wouldn't exchange that samovar arrangement which he bought it, so he took it home with him, and he ain't drunk nothing but coffee in two months. I bet you, Abe commented, and he also ain't got an order from Asimov in two months. The fellow's heartbroken, Morris. He even had made arrangements to sell the store in Dottyville and move over to Bridgetown, you understand? And when he called the deal off, the purchaser sues him for breach of contract yet. But why should he get mad at Klinger? Morris asked. Klinger didn't do him nothing. Maybe you don't think so, Morris, but Asimov figures differently, because he told me this morning that after the engagement is off, understand me, Mrs. Gladstein and him makes a division of the presents. Asimov takes what was sent by the concerns which is selling him goods, and Mrs. Gladstein takes the rest, all excepting a present they got from Mark Spazinski. Spazinski used to sell him both goods, understand? But fortunately, Morris, he sends him a dozen coffee spoons, so Asimov takes six and Mrs. Gladstein takes six. It's a good thing Pazinski didn't send him a single piece of cut glass, Morris said thoughtfully. It wouldn't make no difference to Asimov, Abe said. He would have allowed Mrs. Gladstein half cost price, give or take. He's a pretty square fellow, Asimov is, Morris, and he said he would give a look in here this afternoon. We needn't be afraid from him, Morris. He's A number one up to $250, 30 days net. Morris nodded again and walked slowly toward the cutting room, while his partner sat down to read the trade news in the daily cloak and suit record. Morris had hardly reached the doorway, however, when a strident shout caused him to retrace his steps in a hurry. "'What's the matter now?' he exclaimed, but Abe was incapable of articulate speech. Instead, he held out the paper and made noises appropriate to an apoplectic seizure, which Morris construed as a request to look at something of more than ordinary interest. "'Where? Where?' he demanded, and Abe stuck a trembling forefinger through the printed page, as nearly as the torn edges of the paper would permit, Morris read the following paragraph. Bridgetown, Pennsylvania. D. Gladstein's store closed. 
the stock and fixtures of the general store conducted here by d gladstine deceased were closed out last week and his widow who recently married b guerin sailed from new york with her husband yesterday for hamburg it is understood that they intend to reside permanently in europe while morris perused the item abe gradually recovered his composure and when his partner at last put down the paper abe was able to smile the slow ghostly smile of a man who has called four deuces with an ace full well morris he said resignedly a fellow must expect the worst when he's got an optician for a partner end of section sixteen end of abe and morris being further adventures of potash and pearl mutter by montague glass